Welcome to the Crypto Podcast. You can find all our episodes on the CryptoPodcast.org. I also have the Awakening Podcast, the Speaking Podcast, Learn Polish Podcast, and the Awakening Podcast. And all can be found on RoyCollin.com. Today, my guest, well established since I think 2013, you're involved in crypto. Please welcome John Bush. Hey, thanks for having me, Roy. So I know that you've um, you've been traveling in the earlier days trying to use the Bitcoin, but you might just let people know who you are and how you got involved in Bitcoin and other cryptos. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I've been an activist for 20 years now, just about 20 years since 2002, and have greatly been working to further peace and freedom and truth. And when I learned about cryptocurrency in, in 2011, 2012, it really struck me that it was a wonderful tool for creating more freedom and for disrupting these centralized coercive institutions like big government, big central banks. And I was really excited about it, started learning about it and used it for the first time in 2012 or so. And when I started using it, I recognized, wow, this, this really works. It's easy. It's decentralized. There's no third parties involved. And that's when I was really hooked and sold. Uh, some early activism that we did, uh, my family and I traveled around the country uh, here in the US, uh, maybe four different times. We did cross-country road trips using cryptocurrency only, which was a completely different landscape back in 2014 than it is now. There wasn't a whole lot of adoption, but we uh, went and we put the cryptocurrency ecosystem to the test. We visited restaurants and establishments that accepted crypto. We tried out new technologies like one of the first cryptocurrency uh, debit cards where it spends from your cryptocurrency account, which is pretty pretty uh, normal nowadays. Uh, we hosted meetups and all that good stuff. So that was some of our first big activism. And I'd like to think that we really helped uh, educate a lot of people about cryptocurrency that hadn't heard about it before. Well, I think you'd like my uh, awakening podcast because I'm exposing, you know, fraud and uh, corruption, but with solutions. So that's definitely, right. yeah. So like, there's a lot of stuff that you probably learned f- f- over the years. And like my main objective here is there's a lot of people that want to get involved in this. And I'm seeing a load of fraud. There's a lot of coins that are coming in. People are getting excited and then they're losing everything. And I've like, there's some people they're just putting it on a system and exchange that disappears so you might like how to protect people that's the most important thing that i believe okay yeah there's a whole lot of scams out there and a lot of of thieves unfortunately and with cryptocurrency because of the i appreciate the unregulated nature of cryptocurrency myself but with great freedom comes great responsibility so it's up to each individual user to uh, be cautious. One great rule of thumb is if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is, right? So nobody's going around handing out free cryptocurrency. Although sometimes in our workshops, we give out $5 worth of Bitcoin cash to everyone. But um, if you send someone Ethereum, they're not going to send three times as much Ethereum back. Just try to be uh, have extra scrutiny for certain things, right? And then when it comes to projects to invest in and exchanges to deal with, I like to take more of a conservative approach and focus more on projects that are well-established and projects that have a good track record, projects that 
are here to stay that have a unique selling proposition, not just fly by night cryptocurrencies that don't even really have much of a use case. So I, I take more of a conservative approach, focusing on a smaller basket of well-established cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, I'm a big fan of Cardano. I do like Pirate Chain as a privacy currency. Um, that's the activist in me. But I try to shy away from some of these more experimental, smaller market cap coins. And I think by doing so, especially for new folks, you really can avoid a lot of the headache. Um, but at the end of the day, the cryptocurrency community is very active. So there's tons of websites that have reviews. And then you can find reputable websites like 99Bitcoins, for example, is a great website. They have all sorts of guides and reviews. So the thing to do is to find influential uh, influencers that have a good reputation and then see what it is that they have used and what it is that they support. You can go to Reddit as well, and you can check out reviews on various different websites. So uh, oftentimes, like I said, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. You want to use extra scrutiny and try your best, even though it's good to be first to market and to be fast in this industry because things are really changing. When you're first starting off, it's really important to tread lightly and to use caution and to make well-informed decisions that are well-researched and well-thought-out instead of just jumping into something. I think those are some things that can help people to avoid a lot of headache and loss. Okay. And like with the wallets, um, because I'm hearing all different things with different types of wallets, which wallet do you recommend and why? I like Coinomi for beginners. This is what's known as a multi-wallet, so it'll handle over a thousand different cryptocurrencies. It's a non-custodial wallet, which is ultra important. If you are to purchase large amounts of cryptocurrency or hold large amount of cryptocurrency, you're going to want to hold them in a non-custodial wallet, which means only you have access to the private keys. The private keys are what's necessary in order to spend cryptocurrency out of your public address, which is essentially like your account number in a way. So if you have a lot of cryptocurrency held in a custodial wallet, like a wallet attached to an exchange, for example, you don't truly own that, that coin. You don't truly own that money. It's only when you have your cryptocurrency in a non-custodial wallet that no one else can access that crypto but you, right? So even though a lot of people purchase cryptocurrency through on-ramps like Coinbase or Crypto.com or Kraken or Binance, it's important once you accumulate a you know, a moderate amount of cryptocurrency to go ahead and offload that into a non-custodial wallet. And my favorite one happens to be Coinomi because it's a multi-wallet, it's non-custodial, they have a great track record, uh, no hacks, no big major bugs or flaws, and it's very simple to use for newcomers. And in fact, I put together a free mini course. It's a little online video course that shows you how to set up a wallet in four simple steps. People can find that at setupacryptowallet.com. That's setupacryptowallet.com. And I'll take you through step-by-step -step how to set up one of these Coinomi wallets and how to back it up and make sure it's safe and secure. You always want to write down your private seed, which is a recovery phrase. It's also the master private key that generates all of the private keys and public addresses for all of the different accounts. Um, so you want to write that down on a piece of paper, store it in a safe, ideally waterproof safe, fireproof safe. Make sure you don't write it down on your computer or your desktop or your mobile phone. Write it down on a piece of paper and store that because that's really where the rubber meets the road. If you lose your phone, if your computer becomes corrupted, if your kid spills water on it like my son did to my MacBook Pro many years ago, 
uh, you'll be able to restore that wallet with that recovery phrase. You also want to write down your encryption password. Always make sure your, your wallet's encrypted in case someone gains access to your computer or steals your phone. Your funds will be safe unless someone can get that encryption password. So you want to write that down and keep that in a safe place too. You would uh, recommend both the wallet and the passwords to be in to totally different locations? Uh, if you want to, there, there's always like extra layers of security and it just, you got to balance like convenience and not losing the password and backup with the security. I think it's sufficient to have uh, everything in one place, a safe place. Um, if you have a safe also, you always want to bolt it to the ground if you can, ideally, because the safe in some ways becomes a target if someone breaks into your house, whereas hiding it inside of a book, for example, on a bookshelf is a little more uh, random and hidden. But the thing is with that master, with the seed phrase, it's also called the recovery phrase. It's also called a mnemonic. It's also called a master private key. You, If you have that master private key, regardless of an encryption password, you can still gain access to someone's funds. So it's a great backup because you can import that recovery phrase into a variety of different wallets. If Coinomi one day were to no longer be updated, it's all buggy and flawed. You could import the recovery phrase into another wallet like Exodus, for example. It's another wallet I recommend. And you can gain access to all those funds. So that's great for backup, but it also means that if anyone else gains access to that private seed, that recovery phrase, then they can access all your funds too. So no matter where you put it, the important thing is to make sure it's in a place where no one else can find it. That being said, it's important to inform at least one other person of the whereabouts of this money. And in, in the God forbid, if someone were to get in an accident or if someone's older and they pass on, you definitely want to make sure your significant other, your children, your parents, an attorney, for example, a trusted attorney knows how to access those funds because the last thing you want to do is amass significant wealth in cryptocurrency markets and not be able to pass it on to your loved ones in the event that you were to uh, invent you were to die. You got to always think ahead of what could go wrong and what can I do in the present to mitigate those those possible problems. And like, because I mean, that's something that I've thought about, like say with an attorney, how can you do it in such a way that they can't rip you off? Because I mean, I have seen, you know, fraudulent solicitors so how would you do it in a way that would you have to give it to two different people that combine it or what, what's the safest way that you can't be ripped off well you know even even husbands and wives sometimes turn on each other <laughs> um, so it, you know that's a challenge and the, the beauty of cryptocurrency is you don't have to trust anyone in order to hold your funds. When you have a non-custodial wallet or you're sending cryptocurrency, it's decentralized. You don't have to rely on an intermediary, a third party. So we're all wanting to avoid having to trust people. But sometimes in human relationships, you got you to gotta at least try to have a good relationship with a, with a small handful of people that you truly trust, right? Oftentimes that can be family, but sometimes things go south. So you brought up a good point. There are wallets that are multi-signature wallets meaning there are multiple private keys or different pieces of a private key that have to come together in order to unlock access to the cryptocurrency on those accounts. So that's one thing. You have one child, for example, or one heir has part of the private key. The other heir has another part of the private key. Or even with that recovery phrase, oftentimes they're 12, 18, or 24 words. So one party can have six of the words, the other party can have the other six of the words. 
So that's one extra security feature. But then you got to make sure, you know, make sure they don't lose it, make sure they don't pass too. So, you know, it's a challenge. Um, and again, and there's different layers. Like if you want to just have it all yourself, then you have the risk of passing and not being able to pass it on. If you share pieces of it or have a multi-signature wallet with other people and you're dependent on trusting them or them all coming together, there's also multi-signature wallets where you can set it to where two out of three parties have to sign on with the private keys. So then at least if one person's gone or if one person becomes corrupted, then at least uh, you only need two people out of the three, but there's different solutions for that. Okay, okay. And with like all these new coins coming on the market, and you know some have like a trillion and like getting bitcoin is 21 million is what the max will be like is there a difference or should you be you know buyer beware when you see something that has got a trillion coins okay so the important thing to be aware of when evaluating cryptocurrencies against one another when comparing them to one another what's the important metric is not the price of the coin although that's important when evaluating the coin against itself and where it was last year compared to this year or where you think it's going to be in the future. But when it comes to comparing coins against one another, the most important value to examine is the market cap of each coin, which is the number of units in circulation, the number of coins or tokens in circulation times the value of each token. That's the important number. So in many regards, the number of units really isn't that important. You can have 21 million units. I think there's like over 18 and a half million or so Bitcoin that have been created. So you can have over 18 million units and each one of them be worth 45,000. Or with Ethereum, there's quite a few more units and they're worth, I don't know, through 3,100 now. Or with something like Dogecoin or one of these meme coins, there's literally trillions and trillions of them and they're worth... 10 cents, 20 cents or less, right? It's just all relative. What's important is the market cap value of the coin. And then it really makes no difference. So with Bitcoin, you're either sending, you know, a 10th of a Bitcoin or a five hundredths of a Bitcoin to buy something, you know, average size or 0.001 Bitcoin. But then when it comes to Dogecoin or whatever, you're sending a hundred thousand, it just changes the amount. Really when it comes to economics, that the number of coins is less important. And one thing that is important, I would say, is having investing crypto in coins that have a capped supply, or at least have a expected rate of inflation. Because what we're trying to avoid in large part with cryptocurrency is opting out of this whole inflationary central banking fiat currency paradigm where central bankers, politicians, Treasury departments can just inflate the currency in order to pay for their crappy programs, right? We want to avoid that kind of manipulation. We want to go to something that's more set in stone because as entrepreneurs, as investors, it gives us assurances that the coin's not going to be inflated and we're not going to lose value. So I do think something that's important is a fixed cap cryptocurrency of which Bitcoin is one of them, of which I believe Ethereum is shifting towards a fixed cap which may even be de deflationary, meaning there's now mechanisms in place where coins can get burned. So there might be more coins that get burned, which means they're just removed from the supply. Then there are new coins created, which means the, the supply of Ethereum could go down in some instances. There's other coins like Pirate Chain that has a fixed cap. I think that's important 
I think um, coins have a lot more likelihood to go up in value, or at least to have an expected increase in value if they have a fixed cap, because they can't just be inflated willy-nilly. And what about uh, the guys that kind of drip feed it to the market then? So they release maybe 30% or something like that. They're holding on to a lot of it. I mean, is that just being self-interest or are they trying to protect it? Because, I mean, if, they, if they're releasing so much and then it's going up, they're basically becoming billionaires on their system. Yeah, so with cryptocurrencies, you can always weed, read the white paper. And so the white paper is a document that explains and explores the uh, the mechanisms and the systems and the philosophy and the rules that govern the cryptocurrency. So sometimes there's some things that may seem unfair where the developers are like, we're going to hold on to a big chunk of the cryptocurrency. Then they have undue influence. Then it seems to be inequitable, right? And then there's other cryptocurrencies where it's just completely fair and equal footing and everyone has access and everyone can start mining at the same time. There's something called pre-mining where someone will start mining a cryptocurrency, which is the process of verifying transactions, which in turn generates cryptocurrencies for many different, different cryptos. And they'll mine it themselves before they even launch it to the public. That's called a pre-mine. So these are definitely things to be aware of. When there's a when there's a small number of people that accumulate a significant number of coins, then sometimes there's a little bit more risk for market manipulation. However, I should say, there's always a tendency for a small number of people to accumulate a large amount of wealth in any economy or in any currency or in any system, right? There's this Italian principle called the Pareto principle, also known as the 80-20 rule, which holds that more often than not, in physical phenomenons and systems and economics, especially, there's a tendency for 20% of, I'm sorry, 80% of the wealth to be held by 20% of the people. Or in other words, 20% of the input is often responsible for 80% of the output. So even if something's completely fair and egalitarian, there's a tendency for a small group of people to accumulate a significant amount of wealth in that particular market. But that is definitely something to be aware of. And then, you know, Sometimes there's developers that I guess they're like philosopher kings or uh, uh, benevolent dictators, I should say, where they are good people, they're honest people, and they want to have a stake that motivates them to participate in the growth of the coin rather than just creating it, abandoning it, losing interest in it, right? So sometimes there's a benefit in someone having a significant, being significantly vested in a cryptocurrency. It's just all about weighing it and, and balancing it. I, I prefer things that are more fair um, and the market decides where the accumulation goes rather than the developers are giving themselves a, an advantage in some ways. But it's all different for different coins. And again, the, the best way to be informed about that is to look at the white paper. Just on the, the mining, because I'm hearing a lot about the different mining. I mean, uh, I know like the Bitcoin that it wasn't big power systems before you could use it from your laptop. But now, you know, you, you need cheap electricity. But I'm, I'm also hearing about like helium and different things. You might let us know a bit about the mining. Is it worth getting involved? Okay, so there's different types of, of mining and there's different consensus mechanisms. That's what mining is. It's the system in which a cryptocurrency chooses what party is going to 
solve. I'm I'm kind of rambling on with this definition. It's the system that chooses what party is going to determine if the transactions are valid, add them to the next block in the blockchain, which is a chain of transactions, a chain of information. And then in turn, for solving those problems and figuring out if these transactions are valid, they're rewarded with cryptocurrency. So for many cryptocurrencies, that's how new coins are generated. Whichever party or parties solves a block or verifies the transactions in the next block, they're rewarded with new cryptocurrency. And there's a variety of different mechanisms that are in place, a variety of different systems. The two most popular are proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of work is when you run computers and all of the computers are competing to solve a mathematical puzzle and whichever computer or group of computers solves the mathematical puzzle first, they then earn the privilege of verifying the transactions that have taken place and adding the next block to the blockchain. And in turn, they're rewarded with new cryptocurrency for doing so. Now, like you said, early on with Bitcoin, people could do mining and the proof of work, you're proving that you've run computational functions on your computer. Um, people were originally able to do that with mining software on a laptop. In fact, the first time I heard about cryptocurrency, somebody was encouraging me to mine it on a laptop. And I was like, ah, I don't have time to figure it out. This must have been back in 2011 when you could have just churned out 50 Bitcoin for every block, every 10 minutes, and probably would have solved quite a few blocks. Um, that being said, I'm sure I would have spent the Bitcoin when it's like, oh my God, it went to $2. The Sorry, uh, the I got a power outage there. Sorry about that. That's oh, okay, that's fine. It threw me off. I think I'm getting really technical here too. But as more people put in more computing power, it gets harder to solve that puzzle, which means you have to have more powerful computers. Now it's to the point where you have to have ASIC chips, application specific integrated circuits. These are chips that are specifically designed to run the SHA 256 algorithm. That's the algorithm, uh, the encryption algorithm that's used for Bitcoin. So when it comes to proof of work and Bitcoin specifically, unless you have significant capital reserves, unless you have access to very cheap, if not free power, like hydroelectricity or solar, or unless you have a strong relationship with a minor manufacturer, so you can get ahead of the line, because there's always huge lines. I did mining for quite some time and ended up being kind of a flop, although we created quite a bit of cryptocurrency in the, in the meantime. But the overall investment uh, in the equipment and air conditioning and all sorts of stuff and hardware outweighed exactly what we brought in. Although there were some good investments that we made with some of the cryptocurrency that we brought in, I should say. Uh, I don't think it's very worthwhile unless you want to do it as a hobby or unless you're like ready to come to the table with significant capital in the millions of dollars. You have access to the energy and you have those relationships to get cut in front of the line, essentially. Because the thing that happens when new computers come out, new mining computers, they flood the market. Now, when they've come out and they're faster machines, now all of a sudden the difficulty goes up when you haven't even gotten your machine yet. It's just like an arms race. That's proof of work. Then you have proof of stake. Proof of stake is where the person or group of people that gets to verify the transactions on the blockchain, they're chosen based on how many coins they have staked. So the more cryptocurrency more of a given cryptocurrency you accumulate, like Cardano, for example, and then you stake that cryptocurrency, 
the higher the chance that you will be chosen to solve the next block to, to verify the transactions and in turn be rewarded with Cardano. And the cool thing about these proof of stake cryptocurrencies is you can join a staking pool. So you can purchase Cardano on Coinbase, for example. You take the Cardano out of the custodial exchange where you don't even have access to your private keys. You send it to a wallet like Exodus. That's a non-custodial wallet that has staking capabilities. And you take your Cardano and you stake it and you earn like 4.9% APY, which is just passive income, which is a lot better than most money markets or regular investment vehicles. So if you believe in a project, you can stake your coins with that project and you can earn passive income that compounds on itself, which is a great path um, for folks to multiply their cryptocurrency. We, I did a workshop uh, back in May and it was called Demystifying Crypto, how to safely buy, securely hold and multiply your cryptocurrency. People can find that at cryptoandprivacy.com cryptoandprivacy.com. We spent a significant amount of time on that workshop talking about how to multiply your cryptocurrency in many different ways from day trading, swing trading. Staking is a very easy, foolproof way. Assuming you always have to weigh though, right? Like I have dollars or fiat currencies and I'm going to take them and put them in Cardano or another staked coin proof of stake coin. And even though you're getting 5% APY, what if the value of the coin goes down than that 5%, more than that 5%, then you maybe would have better been better off putting your coin, your, your dollars in another vehicle, but it's all about risk and stuff. I strongly believe in Cardano as a project. It's similar to Ethereum. Uh, they haven't even launched their ability to do smart contracts yet, uh, which I think when they do, there's going to be a lot of opportunity and potential there. Not to mention Cardano's doing a lot of really big things, working with governments, uh, working with big institutions. It's not just some fly-by-night coin. It's a, it's a pretty substantial project with a lot of really big goals. Okay. And um, what about, you know, like we said earlier, you know, we're both kind of fighting the fight against all the corruption in the world. I mean, I, I've yet to see a government that I, I, I have faith in and all the banks as well. They're trying to kick in regulation. I know they're talking about it a lot lately. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, there's a lot of rebels in this world, and I consider myself a rebel. Uh, I reject the status quo. I comply with government and regulations when the risk of not complying outweighs being free. And so I think a lot of people just have to recognize that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And we are literally in a struggle between good and evil, between freedom and tyranny, freedom and control. And there comes a time when we have to take a stand and just say no. And so the beauty of cryptocurrency is that in spite of regulation, people can still choose not to comply. And with cryptocurrency, it makes it so much easier to do that, especially when you use a cryptocurrency like Monero or Pirate Chain, which completely obscures the entire history of all transactions. Many people are unaware, although more aware nowadays, that Bitcoin is a completely transparent blockchain. Again, the blockchain is the collection of all the transactions and all the information that's taken place and the entire history of Bitcoin network. And so if your public address, which is kind of like your account number, is tied to your identity, 
then all of the transactions that have taken place from that public address or even from certain wallets, which pull from different public addresses and combine all those outputs into a new transaction, if someone did a forensic analysis, they could track and trace the history of those transactions. However, with the cryptocurrency like Monero or Pirate Chain, it completely obscures all of that information. So it's impossible to track and trace. At least at this point in history, it's impossible to track and trace. And that really opens up a lot of opportunity for free people to, to engage in commerce and business outside of the scope and purview of the government. And because cryptocurrency networks are completely decentralized, meaning there's no central point of failure, there's no individual board of directors, CEO that can be pressured or held liable for simply running one of these systems, it gives me a lot of hope and optimism. I think it's inevitable that cryptocurrency is the government's going to aim to regulate cryptocurrency, but the more people that use cryptocurrency, the more people that defy the government when they use cryptocurrency, uh, the harder it's going to be to control. In many ways, the cat's already out of the bag. It's, and there's no putting it back in. So they can try and they can attempt to play catch up but ultimately uh, it's a losing game, especially if people recognize and then just take up the banner and they're like, I'm a rebel. I'm against corruption. I'm for freedom. I'm concerned about future generations. I don't want them to grow up in a tyrannical, technocratic, totalitarian dictatorship, a surveillance society. So I'm going to take an active role in creating a more desirable future for my children for my grandchildren and for future generations. And I'm going to choose to leverage cryptocurrency as a tool to undermine the authority of the government and the banks. Excellent, excellent. And uh, just finally, and then you can tell me about your course that you're doing. I always like to know, who do you think created Bitcoin? Ah, uh, I honestly, okay, I actually have a theory. Um, for one, I don't think it was created by the NSA or the government. There's a lot of people that are conspiracy researchers, myself included, although I don't believe this, but a lot of conspiracy folks think it's like some conspiracy to create a, a mark of the beast style system, right? The irony, of course, is that it's a double irony. One irony is that this tool was created, which gives us great freedom and opportunity for freedom and privacy. But the central bankers and the oligarchs are now leveraging similar blockchain technology to create these central bank digital currencies, which precisely will be the mark of the beast system. But the ultimate irony is that people fear that mark of the beast system, and they think they associate the mark of the beast central bank digital currency system with cryptocurrency in general. The mark of the beast central bank digital currencies are centralized and controlled. The decentralized cryptocurrencies are uncontrollable and not. And then you have privacy coins like Monero and Pirate Chain. So the irony is because there's that fear and that incorrect assumption and association, they reject the very tool that is the solution to the mark of the beast system. I don't know if that makes sense, but in other words, if, I'm sorry, when the government and central banks are successful in rolling out these central bank digital currencies that track and trace every single transaction you make and can turn off access to commerce, it's decentralized cryptocurrencies, especially privacy coins like Monero and Pirate Chain that offer us a way out and a way to circumvent those controls. Um, but the point is, I don't think that cryptocurrency was created by the government of the NSA. I think that most likely, when I did that workshop, the crypto and privacy workshop, I spent a significant amount of time on the genesis of cryptocurrency and this evolution amongst a group called cypherpunks. 
These were early internet pioneers that saw the internet as a bastion of freedom and free commerce. And they wanted very, they very much wanted the government to have nothing to do with it. So they started experimenting with how can we have internet money that isn't centralized? And there were multiple different parties. Adam Back was one of them. They had different, they had e-gold. There was one called Hashcash, although I don't think the e-gold guy was associated with the cypherpunk mailing list. There was uh, Digicash, Hashcash, e-gold, uh, a handful of other ones. And they each came up short because some of them were centralized. Some of them used legacy banking institutions. Some of them couldn't solve the problem of double spending with a digital currency. You got to make sure that someone can't clone or recreate that digital unit. And they were all like coming up with concepts. Some of them came up with proof of work and the idea of using hashing functions where you take information and you run it through an algorithm. It gives you a set hexadecimal numbers and letters. And so they were all like so close. And then all of a sudden in 2009, this was all through the 90s, especially. Then in 2009 or 2008, somebody was like, Eureka, I figured it out. That was Satoshi Nakamoto. They released the white paper. And they referenced some of these cypherpunks works and their, their white papers and their material in the Satoshi Nakamoto Bitcoin white paper. So it's my theory that Satoshi Nakamoto is a collection of these cypherpunks that realized, holy crap, we figured it out. This is going to be a really big deal. Rightfully so, it was a big deal. And they're like, we don't want our name associated with it. We don't want to be in control of it. We don't want to be held liable for what could come from unleashing this. We don't, we're not going to ask permission from the Department of Treasury to create this new currency and unleash it on the world. But I think it was either a group of those cypherpunks or one of those cypherpunks. And they just wanted to be anonymous so they wouldn't have people hounding them down. And yeah, that's my theory. I don't think it's um, homeboy with Satoshi's vision, Craig Wright. Something rubs me the wrong way about that guy. And part, a large part is because he sued people for hosting the white paper. Like he, Satoshi Nakamoto, I think, is probably a really cool, badass type of dude. And Craig Wright just seems kind of like a dork, <laughs> somebody that wants to control things. So on the one hand, you have someone releasing this beautiful piece of software, open source, not taking any ownership of it, like a total badass. And then on the other hand, you have somebody that's taking people to government court because they're hosting the white paper. It doesn't match up for me. That's my theory. But at the end of the day, I think it's a good move that they stayed anonymous because now it's like, although there is some corruption within Bitcoin, right? None of this stuff is perfect. There is corruption and control and manipulation within the Bitcoin community but I think it's best that there's not some person that's appointed the dictator of Bitcoin. Everyone looks to them for all the answers. It's a community-driven project, which I think gives it a lot of resilience. Excellent. Love it. So you might uh, let us know. I know that uh, you're, you're releasing a course soon, so you might let us know what it's called, what it entails, what's inside it, and uh, how they can find it. Yeah. When, so when will this be released, this interview? I, I'll actually put it out today. Okay, perfect. So uh, tomorrow I'm hosting a free webinar. Uh, you can go to buildwealthoptout.com, buildwealthoptout.com, tomorrow as in Wednesday, the 11th of August. Uh, the website will still be available. You'll still be able to access it after the fact. It'll probably be a replay. So uh, on that webinar, spend two hours. I'll answer some questions at the end. We're going to talk about why cryptocurrency is an amazing tool for building wealth and for opting out of technocracy, which is like controls, and scientific dictatorship stuff. 
So I invite everyone to check that out. That'll be completely free. Again, it's buildwealthoptout.com, buildwealthoptout.com. And then on Saturday and Sunday, if folks want to spend five hours on each of those days with me, we're going to be doing an in-depth, well, I, so we're going to cover, it's a beginner's cryptocurrency workshop. The website is cryptobeginnersworkshop.com, cryptobeginnersworkshop.com. And I am going to make this workshop as simple as humanly possible. It's not going to be comprehensive. It's not going to be just an overload of information. The crypto and privacy workshop, cryptoandprivacy.com, that was comprehensive. That was over 17 hours worth of content. So if folks really want to dive deep, then that's a good uh, way to do that. But if folks are beginners, Maybe they feel a little overwhelmed. They feel a little insecure dipping their toes in the cryptocurrency space. This cryptocurrency for beginners workshop, we're going to take it real slow. We're going to keep it real simple. I'm only going to teach the information necessary to safely purchase cryptocurrency with fiat currency, to store that cryptocurrency in a non-custodial wallet safely and securely. I'm going to teach people how to send and receive cryptocurrency. I'm going to teach them how to navigate different exchanges to purchase altcoins and to do that safely and securely without losing their butts off if an exchange goes under. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about altcoins, different altcoins. I'm going to share my secret formula for measuring what altcoins are good and worth your time and what altcoins you should avoid. And then we're going to talk a little bit about decentralized finance, which I'm really excited about. I recently borrowed money against my Ethereum as collateral through a decentralized finance platform called Compound in order to pay for my house to get painted. It was a great success. It's gone off swimmingly. I'm really excited to teach people about decentralized finance because I think that's the next wave of disruption in the cryptocurrency space. So again, people can participate in this workshop by going to cryptobeginnersworkshop.com. Excellent. And I mean, I know that a lot of people might actually listen to this afterwards because I mean, I'm podcasting for three years. There's still people listening to the first episode of the other stuff. So I presume that's something you'd be repeating anyway, if they do miss the date that um, that they listen to it after your date, you, you'll be repeating it or they'll be able to access the recordings, mm -hmm. I presume. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the marketing world, we call it evergreen. So the live workshops on the 14th and 15th, if you purchase the ticket now, you'll have 30 days access to the replay, or you also have the option to purchase a digital download of the whole course so you can keep it forever. So after the 14th and 15th, if you're listening to this, you'll still be able to go to cryptobeginnersworkshop.com. And when you purchase it, you'll get access right away to the entire replay for 30 days to view. Or like I said, you could purchase a digital download and have forever. That'll be up and available. Down here. You froze there. I just on. I just recorded again. So okay. Yeah, yeah. But I I got most of it anyway. That uh, it'll be up. And I what I'll do is I'll put uh, all the links on the podcast description, both on the audio and the video, so that people okay. will be able to find it. So listen, John. Just want to thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And thanks for th having me. Yeah. So thanks very much. So that's all for the crypto podcast. You'll find all our episodes on cryptopodcast.org. We're also on BitChute as crypto podcast. And my other podcasts, as mentioned at the start, you'll find them on RoyCon.com. Be sure to give us a five-star rating, a thumbs up. Until next week, take care.